welcome to the podcast. We are recording this episode at the Teach for All Alumni Social Innovator Global Gathering in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in July 2018. In this episode, we are speaking with Shanju, who is the founder of the education charity Rise, which she set up as a teacher after winning the 2008 Teach First Learn Month School Project Award for the youth social enterprise program she created. She's the Teach First UK alumni. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Shanju. Thank you for doing this podcast with me. Uh, why don't you start by telling us about your organization, what problem you're trying to solve, and how does your organization plan to solve it? And I'd love to hear a little bit about the genesis of it. How did it come about? Sure. So RISE, uh, an acronym that stands for Rural India School Enterprise, works both in the UK and rural India to raise the aspirations of disadvantaged young people. And in the UK, um, that vehicle is through a program called the Raw Challenge, where young people build their skills and learn to develop a whole host of soft skills that are required in future employability. And in India, the vehicle is a literacy program called Yearn to Learn that's specifically targeting first generation learners who may not be literate and who certainly don't have parents who are literate. And the way we combine the two programs and the umbrella view of the raising of aspirations is through connecting them. And we do that through Skype and enabling the young people in rural India to actually meet and talk to young people in London. And how did, how did this idea come about? What, what was your aha moment in saying that this is a solution that we need? Yeah, I mean, my aha moment came through doing the Teach First program. So we were encouraged in our second year to think about how we could make impact outside our main timetable. So I was a maths teacher. I love teaching maths, but it really made me think about what could I do as an extracurricular. And at that time, uh, the Dragon's Den, Apprentice, were just about becoming you know quite interesting for our students and I thought about how I could use uh, enterprise to build the skill set of my students but the thing that I really wanted to to do differently was put that social lens on the enterprise and so I I guess I was inspired by trips that I had taken to rural India at a very young age and I had that maha moment when I was like wow wouldn't it be amazing to bring rural Indian life to young people in London and give them that sense of social context as a global citizen to kind of walk in the, the footsteps of young people in rural India to inspire them to, to think about helping them in some way and then develop their enterprise skills in that vein. So that's how what is now called the Raw Challenge came about. I started this program to be a set of workshops that students attended after school, uh, taking them through a variety of uh, concepts around, uh, you know, business frameworks, how you, you know, put together a business plan, how you uh, raise finances, how you market, you know, the importance of teamwork. I had external um, speakers come in from various corporate organizations who I built connections with. And through that program, they were raising funds for a specific school in rural India that I had visited who didn't have an assembly hall, something that the students in London, for example, had taken for granted, um, even though it was in within a disadvantaged context of having a space for students to come together, perform. They really could relate to the fact that, you know, you know, what would they do when it was the monsoons? What would they do if 
you know, there were adverse conditions, where would they all come together? They couldn't believe that there was this outdoor space only for these students in rural India to come together. So they specifically wanted to raise funds to build them an assembly hall. And by the end of the year, um, these students in the UK not only built a whole host of skills and, you know, we did a series of surveys on the impact of this program to build their confidence, to help them feel like they have a, a deeper place within their school community, to give them that sense of ownership and empowerment to actually make a, a tangible change. Um, and they also raised in the process a significant amount of money that was enabling uh, this school in rural India uh, to, to do something that they couldn't do before. So that was obviously um you know a turnaround moment for me in realizing that the, this program worked and through teach first uh, when i kind of graduated as an, an ambassador i was encouraged to think about how i could uh, scale that into an organization and interestingly now that seems like it was um such a sort of planned out path but it wasn't i mean it happened very very organically through that year of you know running the program there were a series of, you know, pitfalls, challenges, but I, you know, I worked through that. I was really lucky to to put this forward uh, as part of the competition that year at Teach First, and it won, which was also, you know, recognition, but also uh, inspiration to kind of think about continuing further. I applied for a British Council grant to enable a visit um, between the two schools that um, had been part of this partnership, and that you know, gave me further insight into what could the organization look like if I did set something up? You know, would it be um, a program just in the UK? Would there be an element that included our students in rural India more? Would there be a way to kind of include uh, exchange visits? How impactful could that be? And so as I was working through all of this, I guess when I first, you know, founded RISE, which was in July 2009, I was just focusing at that point on the raw challenge, just on how can we really, really build a program that is addressing a skills need in the UK, whereby we know that young people aren't developing um, the, the soft skills and the transferable skills they need to be able to, um, you know, go on to employability and to be able to equip themselves in the wider world. And so for the first few years, um, really focused on building the raw challenge, you know, you know, getting external speakers um, support from large organisations like HSBC um, and thinking about how this could advance in some way to what it is now, which is enabling these young people in the UK to speak to, learn about and connect with the young people in rural India. So at the time that I began to think more about, you know, what is the problem that we're trying to address in India, that's when Yearn to Learn came about. And for me, that was realizing that whilst young people in rural India, you know, connecting with or learning about students in the UK is giving them a sense of possibility, it's not addressing the fundamental issue that we now are, which is around literacy. So this is young people in rural communities who are first generation learners, who are you know, many, many years behind their reading level, who probably only go to school to get a midday meal and who have no possibility of accessing the wider curriculum because of their lack of understanding of their literacy. And so a few years later, Yearn to Learn came about 
We started in a very small way as a pilot with 20 students. We wrote a curriculum uh, in Bengali, even though as you may be able to tell, in Bengali is not my first language. So we, you know, building a team at this point. So this was now we're fast forwarding to uh, 2012, um, building a, a small volunteer team out in India, uh, specifically in in Krishnanagar, which is in the Nodia district of West Bengal, um, to evolve and build some sort of Bengali curriculum that could take a child who is illiterate uh, through sentence construction um, and yearn to learn after those first few pilots um, proved successful and we built uh, what we now have is 20 parameters of illiteracy curriculum that takes a child at, through a baseline assessment where we um, ascertain their level of illiteracy can they you know read and uh, recognize the alphabet can they construct words can they construct sentences um, and we have devised that ourselves and we have I guess recently had um, some great success in this given that we've had our first batch of students who have gone through our program for the past four years and just um, passed the equivalent of their uh, GCSEs in the UK which is um, you know class 10 level examinations in India and that's a, a big uh, achievement and a big news story for us but also talks to the fact that this deep-rooted issue of illiteracy in rural communities in India is something that very much lies at the heart of what we're trying to address. Amazing and you know it feels to me like you have a knack of combining different worlds that you exist in I love how you've sort of combined your life in the UK with your roots in India to come up with what this organization was going to be. And it also seems to me, uh, you know, it's, there's a similar, uh, there's the similar things going on in your professional life. So in your full-time, so-called full-time role, you are, you're a consultant, a business consultant. And, but you're also a social entrepreneur. So I wonder how do you think about, you know, your roles in these vastly different worlds and how do you look to combine them? How do you take out time to do this? Um, I mean, it's definitely challenging, but I guess I'd start with saying that a, a lot of us have, um, I guess, a benefit if we're brought into this world and we have, um, you know, cultural upbringing, but we are placed somewhere else that we can combine the two and we can coexist. And we absolutely must try to find a way to coexist in our sort of natural habitats, as it were. So for me, um, you know, I've been going to India since I was very, very young. I have an affinity with Indian culture. Um, I, I care massively about the issues in rural India. And so it was almost like teach first and, and the opportunity to become a teacher, to, to really understand and unpick some of the issues related to education was just such an amazing opportunity for me to think about how I could, you know, bring to bear some of the issues that I've been seeing from a very, very young age that was always within me in terms of wanting to tackle those, but not knowing how to. Um, but similarly, I am, am very passionate about, you know, continuing to develop and learn in the world, uh, well, high-paced, um, incredibly, I guess, crazy at times, but um, challenging world of management consulting. And I believe that in all these years, and it has now been nine years that RISE has been running, albeit in the first four years with volunteers and only full-time members of staff in the past five years, 
and for me overseeing in volunteer capacity that whole time many moments where I've thought about you know throwing in the towel and 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 giving up um giving up maybe on rise at times but then thinking about giving up at Accenture but realizing that you know it is about trying to find that harmony and that balance of what resonates with you as a person and what values you stand for and that it doesn't have to be one or the other and that yes there are practical elements to this but I think intrinsically for me understanding what can on a daily basis give you joy and give you satisfaction and make you feel like you, you know, your your raison d'etre is being fulfilled. There's something for me that happens through my ability to do both. So have the kind of hectic client deliverables, um, but also know that I have a chance to connect back with my deep, deep care of addressing educational disadvantage as well. So that's sort of a, a bit about, you know, why it's important to me on a practical level. Uh, I think it's it's really being quite fierce on your time management. It's making sure that you prioritize well. It's making sure that you understand exactly where your value add is going to be, particularly um, if, you know, recently, you know, the coined term side hustle um, came to me. So if I'm calling Rise My Side Hustle, I, I have to absolutely know where, um, I'm most valued and what's most going to help the organization and I'm not saying that you know in the early days I knew that I'm not even sure at times that I've completely um, got that down now and I think that's the ever-evolving journey of a leader to ascertain um, you know the different pain points that they, they go through at different points in the lifetime and life cycle of an organization at different points at which you know you, you wish to scale at different points at which you know your your team are ebbing and flowing and all of these things are are things that one has to grapple with but at, at the end of the day the thing that that drives me um to stay at both one that you know i have to say that accenture are incredibly accommodating and supportive of you know my time committed to rise uh, you know and there's probably an entire story in that in terms of you know encouraging analysts and some of our junior members to be volunteers utilizing charity days setting up fundraisers having trustees on um, on the board and most recently actually delighted that after many years of applying to the UK Community Fund that rises one of two charities that's been selected to be supported this year which for me shows that the organization have really believed in um, our credibility and that we've gone through a due, due diligence process that I think is seen as a big deal within the the development world within the UK in terms of Accenture support. But I also know that what drives me every single day is thinking about the young people we're supporting. So whether it be thinking about our children in rural India who have you know gone to Kolkata, the capital of the state, for the first time in their life, only because rises help them and enable them to do that, and that's exposing them to an environment and a situation and experience that they wouldn't have thought of before which is ultimately raising their aspirations and that's the what lies at the heart of rise is you know how can we ensure that every child potential is being unleashed how can we make sure 
that they are absolutely reaching for the stars. But if they don't know what the stars are, how are they going to get there? And other moments like at the Dragon's Den. So this is the culmination of the Raw Challenge where all the student teams in the UK come together and, and pitch their learning and, and, and explain how connecting with young people in rural India has been transformative for them. And hearing about their stories and hearing about how they have, you know, t spoken to, you know, Shujan Charkar in, in, a, in a rural community outside Krishnagor and have heard about, <coughs> pardon me, his aspirations and how that's really made them reflect on their own <coughs> moments like that that make me think, of course, I would imagine my life is no other way than having, um, you know, my opportunity to contribute through RISE, uh, but also to, to, to evolve and, and learn and discover through my role as a management consultant as well. And also being able to kind of exchange and transfer skills between each other. Um, I think that's um, a very unique and, and valuable position and something that I would encourage, you know, other social entrepreneurs and other people in the world of business to consider doing the same so that they are feeling that they are, um, you know, fulfilling all elements of their, you know, personality, their character, and ultimately their raison d'etre. That's so inspiring to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and tell me a little bit about scale, you know, as your program has deepened and, you know, grown and you've tried different things over the years since 2009 now, so you're almost coming to 10 years what have you learned about, you know, scale and what you might offer as two or three lessons to entrepreneurs in, and especially in, you know, in, in scaling to new contexts? Hmm. I think the first thing I'd say, which I, I would almost say is an obvious one, but it wasn't obvious to me. And because I'd say that's because I, I let my, my passion or my nature of being a, a doer um, get in the way of this, which is financial strategy and, state of, uh, and sustainability. So I would say that I, we as an organization, um, you know, tried to run before we could walk and had huge goals in terms of the numbers of students we would impact, um, the, the manner in which we would increase that impact year on year, um, but absolutely not necessarily taking full account of our, you know, financial uh, sustainability. And that has bitten us. Uh, you know, there have been uh, moments in the past couple of years where we have probably taken for granted um, the, the scale at which we can grow to and not considered what it might be like if we were to lose a major donor, which did happen. And that meant that we couldn't fulfill uh, the obligations that we laid out in our strategic plan. Um, and I think almost it's that kind of chicken and egg of like, you know, do you, do you wait till you've got your full funding before you start to think about scale? You know, what's that fine art and finessing between the two, but you have to stay very true to yourself. And I think that's something that we've learned now to say that, um, you know, we might push back for a year and, and wait to think about scaling um, all over the UK, for example, because we don't have the funds right now to do that. But how can we ensure that that is prioritised and that we're not just thinking about um, all of the great things and great achievements and great goals uh, and milestones that, that we have the, the financial strategy to support that? Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I applaud anyone or any leader who does that already, because that for me is something that has um, been a huge huge lesson and learning and I would also say that 
you know, that's key alongside many, many other items in terms of, you know, you know, how healthy is your organization? And interestingly, you know, in the, um, one of the first exercises we had to do as part of the, the Teach for All conference that we were recently all at was thinking about, you know, where are we in terms of a RAG status against uh, not just our finances, but, you know, our strategic clarity or our data, our diversity, our culture, our leadership, our governance on our board, our organization structure, our people and our core values. And I think, you know, that is a, a very, very useful exercise to do as a leader on your leadership team, um, you know, quarterly, just really having that sense check and a pulse on all those key areas that are going to drive your organization so whilst i focused on financial um sustainability let's be clear all of the things i've just talked about are important and ensuring that all of those are moving forward and identifying if they're not you know thinking about mitigation around that to help you scale is is crucial so i think i, I kind of echo that as part of um you know having that foot on the the buzzer at all times in terms of those key areas of organizational health um i think and what was always in some ways described to us is you are two organizations you're two separate organizations um you know your model is is quite complex in that yes you're empowering young people to fundraise for young people in rural india and enabling them to um, attend a literacy program there were years where I went by saying that's that's so not complex i I understand it why don't you um, and I think part of that is is understanding uh, that if you have um, a slightly unique and complex model and people are telling you that the chances are that it is and the chances are therefore you are not going to easily replicate that and so coming back to what is at your core um, and this is actually something else that, you know, really resonated at the conference. What is at the core of what you're doing? And are you staying true to your core in terms of your scale and what you're trying to replicate and the impact that you're trying to make? And that will help you refine your model um, and, and help you therefore scale um, into new contexts and countries um, and make greater impact. And then I think uh, the final point is... It's something that would resonate with, with anyone who's building an organization that team members come and go and they can come and go at what you think might be the most pivotal moment particularly if you're trying to launch something or you know at that point you know try something new in a new context and they were the person that had the the most knowledge in that space and you feel like you've you're having to start from scratch um that will happen and i think mitigation against that around you know already kind of doing that succession planning and thinking about you know who might be a deputy in that place thinking ahead to how the team might ebb and flow and i think also that comes along with your leadership style i think you know moving away from having a very rigid org structure um, with roles and responsibilities to one that can ebb and flow according to how you're evolving and scaling um, but again staying on the pulse of that and doing that check uh, more regularly so that your organization can stay healthy. So I think those are probably the, the key areas that I would share. Thank you. And that really resonates, especially uh, the point about being able to do a health check across all of the areas of your organization when scaling, because sometimes 
I think scaling can be tempting in the face of an opportunity on any one or two of them, you know, whether there's a new funding opportunity or a new infusion of talent in the organization. And very often one or two alone are insufficient for a healthy, uh, for healthy scale. So, uh, so yeah, that resonates. And, uh, tell, yeah. And, and, and talk to me a little bit about the growth in your own leadership. So I imagine from the time you were a teach first, uh, you know, teacher, and you and you began to have some of these ideas about rise and uh, and building this organization to many years in. Uh, I imagine you've learned a lot about yourself and how you lead, and what have been uh, some of those reflections. Yeah, I mean, deep reflections. Are we all just our biggest critic? Um, I wonder. I think, you know, self-reflection on this can be extremely uncomfortable at times, but is incredibly necessary. And I think, um, you know, recently started reading a book called Radical Candor, which is obviously about, well, it's not obviously if you've read the book, it's obvious, but um, for those of you that haven't, you know, it's about, you know, how can we give feedback um, in the most effective way to, uh, you know, benefit and empower our team and ultimately to drive our organization. But I almost think it's that, what's that radical candor with yourself um, and taking on board feedback of others um, and, and letting that help you in your, your leadership journey. And so I have, you know, no problems in admitting that in my earlier days, um, I think I had a very sort of traditional leadership style, not in all elements, but in, in the ones that were around the point I just made for, you know, very clear structured roles and, you know, you have this certain role and responsibility and, and, and those are the boundaries but, you know, very much moved into a space where it's, you know, allowing roles and responsibilities to evolve and fluctuate and, and really being in tune with the team to hear that and understand that, particularly when you are so far away. And I think um, just assuming you know things is not good enough as a leader. You need to ask, you need to find out, you need to be present even if you aren't there um, and realizing that, you know, you, you can't advise and you can't coach if you don't have uh, the knowledge to do so. And I think um, taking that step back to do that is important. I mean, interestingly, I, I, I on reflecting about traditional leadership and collaborative leadership and some of the key things around, you know, where that sense of where does power come from? Is is power about being in a position of authority or is is power about, you know, collective leadership? And I'm not saying that I ever thought that it was about authority, but I think I felt particularly for the team in India from being afar, it's very hard to build a sense of collective leadership. And I, I hope that that in that space I've evolved and, and, you know, we connect through Skype calls and, um, and through lots of emails, of course, but, um, empowering them to, to realize the, you know, the power of, of their own individual role within the team is something that I've, um, definitely evolved and learned about. I would say I've always been, um, encouraging of, sharing ideas and I think that partly comes from my consultative nature um so that's something that I would say is a strength in my my leadership um also to do with you know brainstorming idea generation uh, kind of I guess design thinking principles that have always been a part of rise um I think what I would say though is part of um my nature is to be a little bit controlling <laughs> 
and it's something that I've had to unpick um, in my own leadership journey in terms of you know that trust and that empowering of other people and that that belief that um, they they can do this it's it's okay you don't need to know everything um, and I I'll say that you know in the first few years of Rise that's exactly what I was like and I was I was not good at prioritizing my time so I was up till the early hours you know just going through things to you know micromanaging probably um to an nth degree and that's not what you need to be doing you need to be again focusing on the things that are going to add the most value and and letting go and and understanding what the bigger picture is uh, and prioritizing accordingly i think one thing i would say in part of my leadership journey is that and it still remains a challenge that yes there is a a mismatch um, in expectations, particularly between um, myself as a, you know, a, a London-born and then educated, luckily in the UK, um, you know, did a master's, did teach first, you know, been through Accenture training. I, I've been really fortunate um, to land where I am, and that benefit hasn't been afforded to all team members who've been born in Grishnog or maybe not even too dissimilar to the backgrounds of some of the students that we're supporting. And so me being patient and recognizing that, that difference, um, realizing that you know, there's a huge issue of language barriers given that I speak Bengali, but I don't speak it that well, they would probably say, um, that I just have a, a different approach and style given I was born and raised in the UK and there are challenges I would imagine for any leader who is trying to do something in a context that they are not completely familiar with. That's not to say that you can't do it, but it's to recognize that that is challenging and that is part of uh, a development point as a leader that needs to be recognized and worked on um, and making sure that some of your unconscious bias isn't coming through when you are leading your team um, and that's something that I'm really going through at the moment I mean one of the things that really resonated with me or helped me as well at the conference was doing that identity wheel and you know really remembering who you are you know wh what are you made of how can you then also build that into your leadership style um, and how can you be really comfortable in your own skin and I think that's another key point about um, being a successful leader. Thank you for sharing that with so much vulnerability. And, um, and speaking of the conference, I'm keen to hear you know, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, we were gathered in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia as a group of 25 entrepreneurs from around the Teach for All network, from about, I was gonna say about 15 different uh, countries and programs. So one I'm keen to hear, you know, as an entrepreneur, your, you know, the journey is often quite uh, challenging and lonely and with a lot of blind spots mm. as you're starting off there's a lot of you know you don't know what you don't know and therefore what is the importance of a community like that in supporting you and your growth as a leader and also your organization and I'd also love to hear about uh, some key things that you take, took away from our time together in Kuala Lumpur. I mean the event was probably one of the most uplifting things um, I've been to in a long while and that's coming from someone who attends a lot of training and conferences and programs um, you're right I mean it, it's a lonely place it's 
but it's it's almost you know by self-admission something that we feel that we can cope with as leaders those black spots or those dark holes or whatever you want to refer them to and don't don't make us afraid or, or feel vulnerable enough to to not want to fight them and work through them and problem solve through them and that's what we we kind of do part and parcel if we are uh, lucky in our organizations to have a strong leadership team that is shared but if you are ultimately the leader you you can feel like that burden can be on your shoulder and if it gets to the point where as i addressed earlier that there are issues of of sustainability there are considerations around whether the the charity can continue running um that can take you into a very dark place and i'd say that's probably where i'd been um for some time but always with the hope um and I guess the, the promise of being able to turn it around because that's what I want to do. Having this network has been really life-changing for me. We had those four days to be vulnerable, to learn from each other, to share and care. And that is translated post the conference in a way that I guess is probably unfathomable for, for most of us, even for me as an incredibly emotive um, person who builds relationships, I think quite quickly. But the fact that we have this network uh, on hand, on tap, any moment of the day in terms of our thinkings, the challenges, questions, um, and the responsiveness has been incredible. And I think for me, that is an immediate support unit and network. And if I um, you know, have moments, which I have done, I'm sure we all have done since we've left the conference that have been too tough, I remember that I have a, a really supportive network who I can go to, um, who can, you know, give me some of their insights into the challenge in a, in a way that they're having within their context. And I have to, in particular, say that, you know, meeting um, everyone was wonderful, but meeting the Teach for India alumni was fantastic. And, um, you know, some of the strength and some of the ideas and some of the kind of proactive action planning that I got around from the Teach for India alumni um, has been wonderful. But focusing on what we specifically, um, or for RISE, the biggest takeaways, um, I think we, we went into the conference thinking about this notion of the system. So for me, one of the biggest takeaways is, yes, you're working with a child, but are, and you're, I don't know, you're, you're, you're helping them with their literacy. But what else as a consideration in terms of the system um, and the communities that they are in do we need to be considering and we do a lot of that already and we have strong relationships with parents we do home visits and I'm talking about it, our, our Indian program in Yearn to Learn but you know it, it kind of went a step further in terms of you know really really reminding ourselves of you know what do they do that morning you know are they working are, what kind of food are they getting what's their health like um, and all of these sort of, I guess, not just data points, right? So when we started out Arise, that's what we did. We collected a, you know, a huge amount of data um, and that's how we got our initial funders. And, and that's probably the same story for everyone. But really coming back to what is the system in which this child is living and breathing and what are all the considerations that we need to have around that? So that for me was a, a big takeaway and we're uh, trying to do a piece of work around that and link to that. Um, the notion of, of co-creation for the, the problem that you're trying to solve. So I talked about the home visits that we have. So these are first generation learners whose parents 
are very disconnected with you know their child's education some of them in terms of um, their aspirations for their child are mismatched with ours are we doing enough in terms of understanding what their expectations are are we doing enough to ensure that the the model that we have is doing the right things by their children and that they agree with that as a parent so I think that notion of co-creation for the for the problem that we're trying to solve is something that I've taken away um, storytelling I mean there was a wonderful wonderful um, opportunity for each of the alumni to come up and do a kind of a, a an eight-minute breakthrough presentation on something that they feel that they you know have the skills and insight on and um, Stefan from Austria did one on storytelling which I think empowered a lot of people because ultimately at the end of the day we we need to be doing more storytelling you know I I mentioned before about this being the first year that our equivalent of um, class 10 year 11 students in India passed their exams that'll be the first time in their family that's a huge, huge milestone. But I would say we haven't really told our, our you know, our supporters, our donors, um, our community of friends about it enough and storytelling. And every day there are opportunities to storytell. And, and, you know, we're thinking about that within the team now, about how we can better do that. Um, but I think the, the biggest piece um, for me is around the sense of possibility, which perhaps I lost uh, along the way over the past year of, of many, many um, setbacks. So a sense of possibility um, in what we can do in terms of taking rise forward. So we have spent a lot of time um, building our program in the UK, honing and developing it so that it's most impactful. The same in India with our literacy program. But when we're thinking about the context of scale, you know, we we want to push the boundaries. We want to think about how we can uh, turn this into a, a digital opportunity so that we can scale uh, more easily. But part of that sense of possibility um, had, like I said, had kind of fallen by the wayside. But, you know, that's rejuvenated. And, um, and part of, you know, next steps is to get that back in terms of our strategy and plan, ensuring that obviously we have the um, financial sustainability to do that. Amazing. And you're right. Uh, as somebody who is part of organizing a lot of conferences, this was by far the most post-conference engagement and community that I've ever experienced in, mm. uh, you know, in, from any of the conferences that I've done over the years. So, yeah, all of that really resonates. And Shonjo, my last question to you really is, you know, you're you know, you're uniquely placed as these sort of two organizations across the world uh, in, the, in, in the UK and then in India. And I wonder if there's a unique call to action you have for the listeners and for the communities that, uh, that you know, that, that, that tend to listen to uh, these conversations. Yeah, I mean, uniquely placed with such a great opportunity from that position, right? So, whether it be in the UK and I was talking about how, you know, how we can evolve our model in terms of encouraging and enabling young people to connect across these two countries. Um, and I think for a long time, hadn't thought about utilizing, you know, members of the community who are in the UK, who speak Bengali, who can absolutely help facilitate some of our sessions in schools, in your local school, to help them connect back with the communities that you may have been brought up in or your parents have been brought up in. So I think um, a call to action for Bengali speakers 
uh, all over the world, but predominantly um, in the UK for our Raw Challenge program, because that's where it runs right now, to come forward and think about whether or not you'd like to be involved in helping to facilitate a session in your local school to um, help that connection between young people in the UK and young people in rural India. And we are only working in rural West Bengal one day. I hope we will be working further afield in, in some of our other states in India. However, I talked a lot about that kind of mismatch in skills and expectations and how amazing, therefore, the team are for putting up with me um, and my broken Bengali when I'm trying to explain sort of strategic priorities. Um, but how amazing would it be to have uh, someone who is really empowered to work within rural communities of West Bengal who feels that they have a background in education and leadership and coaching and that could be transformative for a team uh, in Krishnagar, you know, come forward, come and talk to us because you most likely are uniquely placed yourself. You might have uh, done the Teach for India program. You might have not necessarily thought about education before, but you know that you have uh, an insight into the entrenched issues in rural communities and that you are you know captivated by the notion of co-creation with some of these parents um, who are first generation learners that you might have spe specific expertise in you know in building um rural communities um not just in west bengal but further afield but you feel that you can bring that skill to rise we want to hear from you um i mean i would be over the moon to speak to someone who would like to help uh, you know, rise on our scaling journey um, with your skills in rural West Bengal. So yes, that's um, that's my big ask and, and hope and aspiration. Thank you so much, Sanjo. Thank you, Sid.